This is Undisciplined. I'm Alice Julin. Utah's Uinta Basin has been commercially producing oil and gas since 1925. In 2016 alone, extraction in the basin yielded 24 million barrels of oil and 280 billion cubic feet of gas. With oil and gas extraction comes the emission of organic chemicals, which leads to a phenomenon called winter ozone, and methane, which contributes to climate change. Monitoring in the basin has revealed that methane leaks are high compared to other gas-producing areas. Dr. Seth Lyman and John Lynn have been studying emissions from gas drilling sites in the Uinta Basin since 2015. In their recently published study, they found that despite production decreasing in the area, methane leaks from these sites have remained high. Dr. Seth Lyman is a research associate professor in chemistry and biochemistry at Utah State University's Uinta Basin, where he studies the detection, emissions, transport, chemistry, and fate of atmospheric contaminants. Dr. John Lynn is a professor at the University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences, where he studies the exchange of greenhouse gases and pollutants between the land surface and the atmosphere. Seth Lyman and John Lynn, thanks for being here. I was thinking we could kind of just get started talking about methane. Um, I know it's a big greenhouse gas kind of buzzword right now, but maybe one or both of you, we can kind of take turns um, with answering stuff, can go over kind of what is it, um, why are we worried about it, and what are the main sources of methane emissions kind of globally? Methane is uh, one of the key greenhouse gases, and um, we care about it for, for the climate context because per molecule, uh, if you think about one methane molecule, it's actually many, many times more potent as a greenhouse gas compared to carbon dioxide, the other biggie. Um, there's been a lot of attention focused on carbon dioxide, rightly so, but more and more there's also attention uh, focused on methane. Now, moving on to your question, what are the sources of methane? One of them, which uh, we'll talk about, is emissions from oil and gas development, but that's not all. There's also the emissions from wetlands, so that's a natural source. There are also emissions from agricultural operations, um, especially cattle operations. So those, those are some of the big emission sources. I should also mention that methane has a linkage to air quality. Methane is something called a precursor. It can give rise to uh, pollutants that affect our health, for example, ozone. And that's been a, a real important issue in the Uinta Basin. So in my mind, if we tackle methane emissions, there's sort of uh, two big benefits we can get from climate because it's such a potent greenhouse gas. So we combat climate change. Uh, we also have this important benefit of, import, uh, of improving air quality because uh, we have less of it to give rise to things like ozone. It, I think that methane is oftentimes mostly associated with cows and um, you know dairy farms and, and beef production. So it's important to kind of demystify that a little bit more and talk about the other sources of it. So yeah, that's um, that's great. I'm curious... I know Seth and I kind of spoke previously about winter ozone, and obviously it's a big human health issue and concern in the Uinta Basin, like you mentioned, John. Um, and maybe Seth, since you're the basin person, maybe you can kind of talk about what's causing this winter ozone and the kind of, I guess, piggybacking that methane plays in that. Sure. So... Um, winter ozone, the meteorological cause is really the same as inversions 
that occur on the Wasatch Front and in Cache Valley in the wintertime, you know, where the, especially in the Uinta Basin, when we get snow on the ground, um, then the ground surface cools, and then you get a high pressure system bringing relatively warm air down, and it, so that cold air on the surface holds in all the pollution uh, and won't allow it to escape. So, so from that perspective, it's the same as wintertime pollution throughout Utah and in a lot of other places too. The unique thing about the Uinta Basin, um, besides the fact that we have inversions that, that are stronger uh, on average than ones on the Wasatch Front that kind of hold things in more tightly, um, is the, the most unique thing is really the emission sources. So the, uh, you know, on the Wasatch Front or Cache Valley, you have uh, cars and home heating and, and agriculture as kind of the, the largest emission sources, whereas in the Uinta Basin, there aren't very many people. About 50,000 people live there, but there are about 10,000 oil and gas wells and a lot of associated oil and gas infrastructure. So most of the pollution that's emitted into the atmosphere comes from the oil and gas industry. Um, and so that pollution that comes from oil and gas really looks a lot different than pollution that comes from cars and trucks and home heating and, and that sort of thing. And so they emit, the oil and gas emits a lot of methane, and with methane comes out a lot of other organic compounds like ethane, propane, butane, benzene, toluene, those sort of, uh, these, these non-methane organics is what they're called, and methane does play a role in producing wintertime ozone. Some of these other compounds that come out of this oil and gas production play a really big role. They produce ozone really quickly, um, especially um, when their concentrations are high enough in the atmosphere. So the, those compounds exist in Logan, in Salt Lake area, during the wintertime pollution events, but the concentrations are much, much lower. So you get, you really get this really big buildup of all of these organic compounds. And then the chemistry in the atmosphere switches. So instead of producing mostly PM 2.5, the particle pollution or haze you can see, then you get production mostly of, of ozone, which is an invisible gas. Um, and when you breathe it in, then you, it irritates your lungs and can cause trouble, especially for people with asthma or emphysema or the very old and very young. Are these winter ozone phenomenons seen in other areas with high oil and gas production? I know there's, I can think of other areas where it, obviously they're not going to have snow in the wintertime or things like that, but is this something that's a documented issue in other areas that have similar production levels to the basin? To our knowledge, there's only one other place in the world where this phenomenon occurs, and that's the Upper Green River Basin in Wyoming, which is the area around Pinedale, Wyoming. So you kind of have to have a few key ingredients to, to make this happen. So you have to have snow cover, and that's critical, especially for ozone production, because ozone is a, it forms photochemically, so you have to have sunlight as the energy source to make ozone. And in the winter, you know, the sun isn't up as long and it's further away, so it's dimmer. But with the snow cover, then you're, you have this, you know, the, the light comes in and it bounces back out. So you're really getting that energy twice to do photochemistry, to, to build up ozone. You have to have oil and gas. So in some places, like the Price area of Utah, then most of the natural gas that's produced is what they call coal bed methane. So it's coming out of these ancient underground coal beds and there's not much of these 
non-methane organics that are produced. And with methane alone, methane isn't reactive enough to make uh, very much ozone in the, uh, at least in these short-term air quality uh, episodes, you know, or, or winter inversion episodes. So, so you've got to have oil production or what they call wet gas, so gas that's rich in these other non-methane organics. And then you have to have a third ingredient too, and that is the inversions. So you got to have stagnant conditions where the pollution stays in place. Can I just uh, jump in there, Ellis? Yes, go for about it, John. That? Yeah, so uh, just picking up where Seth left off, um, just tracing the history of some of this work, uh, I would say about a little over 10 years ago, some of these phenomena were first observed in Wyoming and, and here in Utah. And that really blew the atmospheric scientist's mind because most of us, when we think about ozone, when I was studying it in grad school, it was mainly thought of as a summertime phenomena. And that's what we have along the Wasatch Front, you know, mainly summertime ozone episode. It's the high temperatures, the sunlight that cook and drive the chemistry. And then it was these two places that uh, amazingly experienced very, very high levels of ozone, as high as places like LA in the wintertime. You know, so the season is totally mismatched. And the reason is exactly what Seth talked about. And um, that was when um, some of the, the, these first methane measurements were made uh, by scientists from NOAA, the federal scientists. And that's when they found these really high emission rates of methane. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you kind of touched on this, that about 10 years ago is when this monitoring for emissions began, looking at this winter ozone. And I know Seth previously had mentioned that it it's something that began primarily just monitoring in the winter, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, John, maybe you can talk about your the impetus for you to get involved with this work and um, kind of begin that year-round monitoring and looking more closely at these um, methane emissions throughout the year rather than just with this winter ozone phenomenon. Sure. Yeah. Thanks to Seth and other people, you know, there's a, a nice air quality network started up. And I decided to get involved after I saw those numbers from the NOAA scientists of the emission rates. And also, uh, I'll point out the leak rate. So the leak rate is calculated by taking the emissions and dividing by the um, production rate of natural gas. What the the NOAA scientists have found is that uh, the leak rate is as high as 10%, um, roughly speaking. So about 10% of the natural gas being produced in a basin is actually lost to the atmosphere. It's not captured. It's not burned for energy. So that was actually a pretty high number, actually one of the highest in the nation of all the oil and gas uh, development areas. So that sort of prompted me to to check whether that's that holds up or not because um, that study was based on aircraft data from actually only one day in the winter time. And uh, I believe it was 2012 that they flew. So I, I, I just had a very simple kind of motivation. I wanted to check whether that number holds up and also how does this number change over time? So in 2015, um, working with Seth and others, you know, I established these methane measurements co-located with his air quality measurements in the basin. And um, I followed the, the data over time and recently found that um, the emissions have actually gone down over time since 2015. And roughly the emissions are about half now in 2020 
diving into the paper, I think the thing that I was most curious about, you kind of mentioned this in the discussion section, that you were surprised to find that methane leaks stayed the same while emissions declined in the area. But I think according to other studies or literature that you cited, you might have expected them to have increased as production decreased. Can you? Yeah, yeah. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so one thing I just mentioned is that uh, the leak rate stayed high, okay, roughly constant. Okay. But, th- but there's also a question in our mind of why didn't go even higher. It could potentially have gone higher. Um, so why would emissions, sorry, the leak rate, I mean, the percentage again, so I want to make that distinction. Why would per- percentage go high as the production goes down? Okay. It's one potential explanation for that, that, that um, that's been reported is imagine um, uh, some faulty equipment at a well site. These leaks can happen for a lot of reasons. You know, most of these leaks are not by design. Most of these leaks are due to some failure of equipment that's just natural, and that could happen anywhere potentially in the infrastructure. So if you take, let's say, a single well pad, there's you know a chance of one component failing okay, and emits a certain amount. Then if you take that emissions and divide by the production from that well, that ratio should go up as the denominator, this production rate goes down. So that ratio goes down, right? Sorry, the ratio goes up. The ratio is the leak rate. You would emit proportionally more per unit of production um, as the production goes down. So, so that didn't appear to happen, actually. The leak rate stayed high, but relatively steady. So one hypothesis we have is that uh, this is due to measures the industry has taken. So these are voluntary measures because it, there was no specific regulation forcing them to uh, plug the leaks in these existing wells as of recently. Okay, so so this could be voluntary measures the industry has taken to try to identify and plug these leaks. This is called leak detection and repair, and the acronym is called LDAR. So due to these LDAR efforts, that uh, the leak rate didn't even go higher than we may have expected. That's so interesting. And I know that the basin is an area with really high oil and natural gas production, and so I would imagine that there's quite a few older wells or... um, maybe wells that aren't even actively drilling anymore or pumping anymore. Um, would you expect that wells that are kind of decommissioned will have higher leak rates or will continue to leak? Um, and is this kind of leak detection and repair geared towards that? Or is there something that's being done to, to kind of address that potential problem? So there's a, a couple ways wells can go offline, stop producing, right? So when they when they first get drilled, then the production is at a relatively high rate and then it declines exponentially. And companies can do things to re-stimulate that uh, production of oil or gas. And But eventually then the well will produce not enough oil or gas or both to 
to uh, remain economical. And the company can do a couple of things. One is it's called shutting in. They can basically close everything off, leave the infrastructure above ground in place, and just kind of let that well sit on idle for a while. Um, when it does that, then the emissions should be lower um, than, than when the well was producing because you don't have valves turning, you don't have a, a tank filling with the hydrocarbon liquids, or, you know, the oil. Um, and, but there would likely be, and we've measured, some leaks or emissions even from these uh, shut-in wells if you have a, you know, a faulty valve or, a, or a, a fitting that's not tight or whatever. So there are some, some emissions there. Um, and then the, the reason companies would do that is they might think, well, when prices go up, then it could be economical to use this well again. And so they'll just kind of hold it for a while, and then they can either later on um, start that well producing again, or they can go into what they call plugging and abandoning, abandoning the well. And when you plug and abandon, then you take off all of the surface infrastructure, you pump cement down into the hole to seal it all off, and then and then reclaim the soil and it's possible for there to still be emissions um, from those plugged and abandoned wells but it's uh, pretty unlikely um, we've done some measurements another group has done some measurements in the Uinta basin of some of these plugged and abandoned wells and haven't seen any detectable emissions okay i know that discussion of plugging wells that are out of commission is kind of a big topic right now especially in some areas in colorado where they're dealing with the cost of plugging wells. And I was curious what that, what the implications of that were for emission, from an emission standpoint. Getting back to that extraction in the basin and the economy of the basin, I know we're seeing natural gas prices going up now. And John, I know you said that the 2021 data isn't, um, you haven't looked through it yet, but do you, maybe you both could speculate what you expect to see change as gas prices are going up and um, production is going to be increasing. And I know, Seth, there's there's drilling happening in the basin or new drills being dug, correct? That, that is correct. John, do you want to take the first stab at that? Sure, yeah. Um, well, it's kind of an open question. Uh, of course, if we take just a mathematical approach, you know, if the leak rate is constant and... Um, you know, the production goes up, then the emissions, of course, would go up. Uh, but I left off the previous conversation with uh, LDAR, the leak detection and repair. And there's been a bunch of technology that's been developed over the past few years in terms of leak detection and repair um, that's become commercially available. And uh, it's much more viable for companies to adopt them. So what are these? Um, they include low-cost sensors that you can put on you know, your well pad or whatever facility. Um, you can have drones that fly around. And uh, they could have cameras, for example, that could, could detect big plumes of methane. Um, there's also aircraft, remote sensing, and then satellite technology. All of those are becoming viable. So there's been a bunch of technology that's been um, sort of developed. And uh, there's hope that some of this could be adopted. Uh, because e even if the, the emissions have halved um, in 2020, the, those numbers, if you translate them into the greenhouse effect, you know, the warming effect, it's quite potent still. Um, we've done some calculation recently and, and 
the amount of emissions right now in 2020 um, is about the same as all the cars emitting to the atmosphere uh, in Utah. Uh, so all the cars registered in Utah. So that's about, I think, 3 million um, cars. And uh, the emissions from the basin from methane, because methane is so potent again, um, so it's about 85 times more potent uh, in terms of warming effect than carbon dioxide. So that's why it has this disproportionate effect. And this is just so, methane emissions. Yeah, in go the ahead. Basin. Sorry, this is just methane emissions in the basin that is equivalent right. to all the cars in the state. Yeah, yeah, that was quite a, a surprise that we, we, we did the calculation. That appears to be the case. So it's, it's still quite a potent um, warming effect. So I think the hope is that due to natural gas prices and the, the need for energy, you know, there could be increased production, but not with the accompanying methane emissions. Kind of going off of that or thinking about emissions, John, you mentioned before that the Biden administration has these goals to be reducing emissions. Um, and then other countries have signed on to try and reduce methane emissions as well. Can you maybe talk about, or maybe this is too tangential, but could you maybe talk about how we can best reduce methane emissions or what the plans are in place to reduce them? Or as someone who is so familiar with greenhouse gas emissions, what your recommendation would be if if Biden came knocking on your door to ask? <laughs> um, now, in terms of what the U.S. can do, um, certainly the oil and gas production, like what Seth has talked about in terms of new ways of, of of developing this infrastructure, um, leak detection, um, that is very much uh, being talked about right now. Um, we mentioned the cows and agriculture. There's also a lot of work being done on that front. There's things about manure management. <laughs> so interesting phrase there, but you could you could operate the manure lagoons. They're called. <laughs> uh, so these big pools of manure from big agricultural uh, operations. And the, the, the great thing is these also produce a lot of methane, right? So you could recapture that methane and turn it into energy, you know? So that's being implemented and talked about. So those are some of the measures that are being talked about. Can, can I jump in there too? Oh yeah, Seth, go for it. Yeah, I just, um, I think that when looking at like the global climate change crisis, you know, then then there's a lot of, you know, there's certainly a, there's a need to act quickly. There's a this urgency because the climate's already changing, but that's really at odds with how in, infrastructure works, how humanity works, right? And and so it, John's right that in the oil and gas industry, reducing Methane leaks means more methane captured for sale, and that's a win-win. Um, but there is this law of diminishing returns where it becomes harder and harder to get, you know, you get the low-hanging fruit first, and then, and then it costs more for every molecule of methane saved over time. And it, it's a difficult process to get perfect because these, these organic compounds, the, the organic gases, the natural gases, is uh, at very high pressure when it comes out of the well. And it's not just gas. You have to separate out 
liquids, different types of liquids. You have to process the gas. And that whole time, the gas wants to escape into the atmosphere. It's, uh, and, then, and then at the same time, just shutting off natural gas production is not a good option because uh, right now, at least, humanity depends on natural gas for heating and power and things like that. So uh, sometimes in the news or from activists or whatever, you, you hear this, it's urgent, we've got to make changes now. And, and I don't disagree with that. I think that's true. But it's, it's at odds with kind of the, the facts on the ground to an extent. It's, it's hard to make these changes. And, and it's not all just like, oh, yeah, simple solution. We do this. And then, it's, and then uh, all the whole problem solved. It's more like a, a process over years of companies learning how to do things differently, regulators adding regulation over time, seeing how they work adjusting things over time. And then, and then there's also this process of changing things from the demand end, right? Like you can use less natural gas and, and then that makes for less natural gas emissions and all those things work together. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's this kind of messy, sometimes one step forward, two steps back. And that, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of the human process involved in making these changes. That's Dr. John Lynn and Dr. Seth Lyman. They are professors at the University of Utah and Utah State University. Their latest study was recently published in Scientific Reports. John and Seth, thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Ellis Julin. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>